This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to start on a theme that will continue over the next perhaps two or three talks. The theme is Two Kingdoms, and this has been a very important theme for me over the years. And it's a good time now for me to come to it because it will recur in the future as well. It's really important for us to understand that there are two kingdoms. Today I'll do a, a brief introduction on the topic, and then in the next few talks I'll talk about how the kingdom of God is just completely different from the kingdom of this world. So we'll get started here. Many years ago, a very good friend of mine, a man who I really look up to and respect in the Lord, said to me that the kingdom of God is completely different from the kingdom of this world. I pondered that. I thought about it. And though I believed it to be true, I had no real experience of it being so. That the kingdom of God is completely different from the kingdom of this world. There's very little overlap in these two kingdoms. And that's why it's so important that Jesus came to reveal these things so that we would live in reality, uh, live by the truth. And uh, Jesus said, everyone who seeks the truth or wants to know the truth listens to him. So this topic of the kingdom of God being completely different uh, resonated in me. And uh, as I said, I believed it to be true, but I hadn't really lived it. I didn't really understand it deeply inside me. So we'll talk about that. Now my understanding of this and of course, there's so much that can be said about so many things, but I hope what I say here is encouraging, and I hope I don't say anything original. And that's one of the thoughts I've had as I do these talks. I really hope I don't say anything that's new, though I do hope that things will be fresh. Um, and that's good, because God's Word is living and active. His Word is like a meal. It's like bread. And some of us have our favorite pastries, and we go back to those same pastries from time to time. And it's good to come back to those uh, same teachings from time to time. In my early years in Russia, I worked every summer out in summer camps. They were not Christian camps. They were privately held camps north of St. Petersburg. And we had many mission teams coming in and doing programming in these summer camps, primarily helping orphans. And at the end of each summer, we would have a big dinner uh, gather together, have the camp directors come together, have a cookout. And at one of these cookouts, we were talking with camp directors about Jesus. And one of the camp directors, Viktor Vladimirovich, said, Jesus is a communist. And I think Viktor said this because he had been a communist in the Soviet system, and he may still be a communist. And he said, Jesus is a communist. Well, some people think this based on Acts chapter 4, verse 32, when Christians share everything in common. And yet, many early Christians had their own businesses and owned their own property and were free to do with it as they wished. You can read Acts chapter 5 to see that. And Jesus himself was supported by wealthy women, by business owners. And Jesus didn't teach communism. So Jesus, I don't believe, was a communist. Some others have said that Jesus is a Democrat. 
Some believe that the foundations of democracy are in the Bible. But democracy is found nowhere in the Bible. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Winston Churchill. He said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Well, I tend to agree with him. When human beings are involved, democracy is perhaps the best among the worst forms. (laughs) But Jesus was not a Democrat because democracy is not in the Bible. Jesus is a monarchist. He taught that there is a kingdom. He came and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is a king. He is the Messiah. He sits on the throne of David forever. Jesus is a king, and he has a kingdom. And the kingdom is where the king rules, where the king has authority and reigns over his people. And of course, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world, and yet he is a king. He's a monarchist. He's not a communist. He's not a democrat. He's a monarchist. And for many of us who have grown up in democracies, it's hard for us to realize that. I was visiting the Hermitage, the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, and there's a throne room. And in this throne room, there's the throne sitting up on a pedestal, a dais. And it struck me once when I was in there that the only person who could sit on that chair was the Tsar, the Caesar, the king of Russia. No one else could sit on that chair, on that throne And the person who sat on that throne had all authority over his realm. He or she had the authority of life and death. If anyone came before the Tsar, came before the throne, then the king or queen who sat on that throne had the authority to tell the soldiers, kill this person, or give this person many lands, give him great wealth. The king has full authority over his realm. No one else has authority over the king's realm. For those of us in uh, democracies, we are used to electing representatives, and in the democratic system, the people are the sovereign. And yet in a kingdom, there is only one person who has all authority. And this is one reason I think that people in democracies often don't have a sense of awe or fear of the Lord because we're not used to being under a single person who has that kind of authority. And I'll talk later about what kind of king Jesus is, but for now it's enough to say that he's a monarchist. And he spoke of two kingdoms. I'll read here from Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus here speaks of two kingdoms. He talks about Satan and his kingdom and the kingdom of God, which is coming to the people. Well, who is the king of this world? Who has authority here? 
In John chapter 12 and John chapter 14, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here Paul is saying there is a God of this age. Jesus says that Satan is the prince of this world. So let's look at Satan for just a second and think about his kingdom and how he is a prince or a king. He's the God of this age. First of all, Satan, the word Satan, is an English transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means adversary. There are a few transliterations as opposed to translations in the scriptures. Uh, This is one, Satan, the Hebrew word for adversary. To baptize is another transliteration of the Greek word that means to dunk. I'll talk about that in a future talk. So sometimes these words are not translated, they're transliterated. And this is what Satan means. It's the word for adversary. Satan is a liar and he's a destroyer. In John chapter 8, we read that he was a murderer from the very beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. Look at that. Anyone on the side of the truth listens to Jesus, and in Satan there is no truth. Continuing in John 8, verse 44, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the king of this age, of this world, the prince of this world. There is no truth in him. If he says anything to you, it is not true. He may use elements of the truth to deceive people, but he is a liar. He's an adversary. There is no good in Satan. There's no good in him. And interestingly, we need to understand that God has given him authority for a time. Actually, I'd say that humans surrendered their authority over the earth to Satan. But God allows Satan to have authority. If you remember in the book of Job and also in the New Testament, Satan asks permission to give Job trouble. He asks permission to give Peter trouble to test them. And God, the Father, allows him to do that. This will come up a little bit later when we talk about the place of suffering in the kingdom of heaven. God has given Satan authority for a time. Satan is also of a higher order than man. The angels are of a higher order. Now, later, human beings will judge angels. But they are higher than us, and Satan and his demons are just fallen angels. A third of all the angels fell, and Satan is the leader of these fallen angels who we call demons. Satan is smart, and he has a lot of experience as are the evil spirits that work with him. He is powerful, very powerful, very smart, with a lot of experience, but he is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not equal to God. Satan is created, and he is not equal to God. There is only one true God, and he is purely good. We have to understand that in Christianity, it's not like the view of Taoism, this Chinese philosophy, where you have the yin and the yang, the black and the white, that are sort of swirling around together, that are parts of the Tao, 
balanced, that good and evil, light and dark are balanced. That is not the view of the kingdom of God. God is truth, and there is an adversary, but he is not equal to God. The question then becomes, who is the king of the kingdom of heaven? Satan is the prince of this world. He's the god of this age. Well, who is the king of the kingdom of heaven? Well, we know the answer to that. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth. That's like saying John, a mechanic from Bogart. (laughs) Bogart is a small town outside of Athens, Georgia. Can you imagine that a, a carpenter from a small town is actually the king of heaven? He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus proved his kingship and authority by the works that he did, and in particular, the resurrection. Those things attest to his authority. And as I mentioned earlier, he is the king who was prophesied to sit on the throne of David forever. God made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, and promised that there would be a person sitting on the throne of David forever and ever, and that's Jesus. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Several years ago, when I was at church in Athens, Georgia, uh, just before Sunday school started, so it would have been around 9.30, I guess, a friend of mine came uh, sort of breathlessly up to me, and she had been awakened about 3 or 4 in the morning, if I remember the story correctly, and God had given her a scripture for me. This was quite a few years ago. Well, If somebody comes up to me breathlessly telling me that God has given that person a scripture for me, well, I'm going to listen. And so she said that God had given her Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, and that they were for me. So I listened, um, and I received, and then I meditated on the scripture, and it really has been uh, foundational for me in many ways. I'll read it here and then talk about it just a little bit. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Well, this is a very rich scripture, and it's just wonderful the way the Lord brought it to me. And I encourage you, if as I read this, something in your heart jumps, take some time over the next couple of weeks to meditate on the scripture, Colossians 2, 6 through 10. And there are lots of really good messages that come out of this particular scripture. Today I'll focus on verse 8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Here we see that there are two ways of looking at every situation hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, and a way of looking at things through Christ. There are two ways of looking at things, the world's ways and the Lord's ways. And we must be very careful not to be bound by the world's ways of thinking. 
Verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through these worldly ways of thinking, hollow and deceptive philosophy. There are a lot of philosophies that sound right and seem good, but they're hollow. Or they are deceptive, which is to say they present something as being true, but it's not true. And then there are these human traditions and then the basic principles of this world. I've been involved in business a lot, so I understand a lot of these basic principles of the world. And yet, if we live that way, we're going to be taken captive. We'll be bound, limited. Our decisions must be based on Christ himself. That's what's interesting about uh, verse 8 in Colossians 2. It contrasts the basic principles of this world and Christ. It doesn't say that we should base our lives on the principles and philosophies of Jesus. It says we should base our lives on him, on Christ himself. We should not base our lives on his teaching or his advice. We have to base our lives on him, our perspective of the world, how we understand things is on Christ himself. I'll read it again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. We followers of Jesus who have been born again have the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to give us wisdom and life. We don't stand separate from God and try to live out his philosophies. We enter into a union, a communion, an abiding with God by his spirit. And that's where we base our lives. It's on him. Christ is the head. We are members of his body. Our lives are not our own. Our lives are his. The scriptures say that we have been purchased at a price. I was talking with some friends recently, and we mentioned a slogan that is common in the United States. Sometimes it's on a, we call it a bumper sticker. It's a little sign that you stick on the back of your car. And one of the famous ones is, God is my co-pilot. I used to think that was probably right. God is your co-pilot. I thought that might be something to aspire to. But now I see that that's pretty wicked to think that I can pilot my own life And when I need help, God will chip in. But I'm still the one at the controls of my life. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is a submission to Christ as the head. It's a beautiful submission of abiding in him and letting his life flow. And letting him not only be our Savior, the one who pays the price for the sins that we commit, he is also the Lord. He's the King. He's the boss. He has authority. He is the head, and we are just members of his body. Our lives are not our own. They are his. Well, that was my introduction. Now we're going to move on in the next talks to look at how different is the kingdom of God from the kingdom of this world. What are some of those differences? And just to give a little look into what I'll be saying, I'll talk about the place of hardship pain, and suffering in the kingdom of God and how that contrasts with the way the kingdom of this world thinks about it. And if you want to prepare a little bit, you can read Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be talking through that and some other scriptures related to hardship, pain, and suffering. I'll also be doing a 
a word study of a Greek word, the Greek word character. And one of the things that I really like a lot that I've enjoyed is studying how words have different meanings in the kingdom of God. For instance, the word life means something different in God's kingdom than it does on this earth. And death, the word death, means something different. It, it's different to God when, from his perspective. The words joy and love have different meanings than they do in this kingdom, on this earth. The word hate has a different meaning. Isn't that interesting? We think we know what hate means, but to God it's really something other than what most people mean by hate. We'll look at how do we gain a meaningful life? What is it to, quote, win at life? We'll look at that. And then I'll finish up talking about what kind of king do we have. The character of Jesus as the king, what the scriptures reveal to us about his kingdom and his kingship. Oh, there's so much more to be said about these things. I want to take my time as we work through it. And I encourage you to meditate on and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus doesn't offer good advice when he says things like, don't worry about your life. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not offering good advice. He's actually giving commandments as the king. And he's revealing the way the world really is. So when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, or when you read other words that he says, he's not offering advice that we can choose to follow or not follow. He is saying this is the way the world really is. The kingdom of God functions in this way. And again, this is part of repentance, that we have a new mind and a new understanding of what life is, what really is eternal, what's really valuable, what our place is as human beings in this kingdom, why we need to have a savior, and why we must have a king. Those are the topics I'll come to in future talks. And until next time, I pray that God will continue to reveal his will and his ways to you, for his ways are good, and they always bring peace to the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.